out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week is going to be the turn um, from, well, it's California. This is the Pandoras, who um, I spoke to one of the members very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry. That is Melanie Vermen, keyboard player and guitarist, who went on to work or form the Muffs as well and uh, has been in lots of other bands. So you'll find out more about Melanie and her incredible career throughout the interview. So I won't spoil it anymore. Let's get right down to it. So basically, after several minutes of casual chat, I got down to that very exciting subject that was the early formative years. It's a classic, I know. Anyway, Melanie, it's over to you. Uh, I remember getting my first... I was pretty pretty young. I, I bought some Beatles albums at a garage sale. And I made a little makeshift clubhouse in my backyard, and I took a, I had a little tiny record player, and I took it out and kept spinning the records. And I really remember that was like the first time, just like really loving music so much and listening to the same records over and over and over again. And then, um, uh, like later, like later on, I got into the Monkees, and um, I was into rock stuff too. I had like a Led Zeppelin album. I loved Cheap Trick. Um, and then I just really got in high school. I started, I was really lucky because I had a really cool mom and she let me go out. She let me go. I lived in Orange County at the time and I was 15 and I got to go up to LA and go out to clubs, even though I wasn't old enough to even be in the clubs. Right. I got in the clubs and that's how I really got involved in like the 60s garage scene. I was about 15 and a half then. Blimey, you had very liberal parents, didn't you? Were they quite bohemian? Um, no, I mean, the thing with my mom, she was an, she was an artist. Uh, she painted and she, she would write, but she was a high school teacher. She was a business teacher, but she was always really young. And she was like almost the same age as her college or her uh, high school students. And so she kind of would hang out with them. And, and like, she had a cool... Um, Impala, and they would like have her go race it like on the drag strip and stuff. Wow. I don't know. She just she was cool. She 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 said go go do that. Be who I want to be. I got to dye my hair. Like there were no really restrictions put on me. Yeah. Dyed my hair back and got to like I I got into that whole sixties thing and I got go go boots and I'd show up at high school wearing that and people would make fun of me and my. My friends in high school but little did they know we had amazing taste in music yes absolutely so was it people like because there was that compilation called nuggets which had people like i don't know is it the sonics and such bands like that and my mind's gone blank but then there was kind of people like you know the stooges and then there was the velvet underground so did you start listening to stuff like that was it was it more the garage rock stuff uh, well, I started going record shopping, like it, it, it all really hit like around when I was 15 and I started hitting like thrift stores in all the cool record stores and I just started like buying up like all the cool 60s records. I had the Velvet Underground, I had the Electric Prunes, I had the Chocolate Watch Band, I had um, the Standells. I just, you know, I got the, the Count Five. I got into like 
all those bands and there were record stores and I would just go through the bins like, oh my God, score, score, score. Um, the, the left bank, there, I mean, kind of a wide variety. Um, the zombies, love the zombies. Uh, but the, I, had, I got a huge record collection and mm -hmm. I just really got into it. And then I started, um, they had these cool dance clubs that, that you could go to and, and they would play soul music and you would dance and, and hang out. And um, I forgot what your question was. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes, yeah, yes, that I, would, that... I got into it, that music. Yeah, absolutely. And did you start thinking, actually, I want to, because I never went beyond just being an obsessive fan. Did, when did you start thinking, actually, I want to learn to play an instrument or be in a band? You know, I kind of always thought that in the back of my mind, I was 11 years old and my mom had bought me, I said, oh, I want a guitar. And she bought me this acoustic guitar and I was a jerk. And I said, I don't want an acoustic guitar, take it back, I want an electric guitar. So she took it back and I didn't get another guitar. So that was that. And um, I kind of had this look in, in the whole scene, I was kind of like, kind of known in the whole 60s like garage scene in Orange County in LA and San Diego and so I started getting to know a lot of people that were older than me and they would drive me around and that's where I got to know the bands and that's pretty much how I met Paula so right. it wasn't like I like I had when I was young I took piano lessons so I knew a little piano I played clarinet for five years as well so I could read music and um but I never really thought like I'm going to pursue, of course, in my dreamland. Yeah, I would have been a band. This would be amazing. Yeah. But I never thought I'm, I can like go play. And that's really ultimately what led me um, to getting in the Pandora's was because I knew Paula from the scene, just seeing her around and she liked how it looked. Yes. Because it was quite, because it was interesting, because in the 70s, and you mentioned Cheap Trip, because God, we all loved Live at Put a Cone. And there was also people like Pete Frampton, Pete Frampton Come Live. Actually, we used to love live albums, didn't we, in the 70s and 80s? We hate them now. But at the time, we used to sort of... <laughs> Care for live albums, to tell you the truth, it's not my favourite thing. But I mean, there's, there's some cool ones. But... Yes. I don't know, when I was younger, I used to love the live album more than the studio record. But then there was those kind of rock, classic rock, we call them classic rock because I guess they are now aren't they like Boston, Cheap Trick, Pete Frampton yeah. and, and Led Zeppelin which was kind of more heavy rock but then but then there was also that kind of mod scene and you mentioned the zombies who were much more modish and also a lot of that sort of um, garage rock kind of veered into that so in the late 70s they there was that kind of rise of kind of going back into sort of that psychedelic mod sound. Did you, was that something, did you like the fashion or did, did you sort of think, God, I'd love to be in a band like that? Uh, like, okay, so this was like all in the eighties. Um, well, I, I can remember like when I got into the, the, uh, the whole sixties thing, I thought, wow, this ultimately, I mean, I always had the same hairdo and everything, but I just thought the look was just so cool, just like, uh, like Ready, Steady, Go, Kathy McGowan, like that whole, like the bob with the black hair and that the eye makeup, I've always worn all that kind of stuff, and I just thought, wow, that that's just so cool, so I really got into the whole, like, 
fashion of it and um I I I just it was it all went together like the style the fashion it was like our life I mean we did we'd go from party to party and it was the music and, and the way that we looked and then um, all the bands had cool equipment they had like cool box equipment box box amps box bass guitars keyboards everything and I just got really into this whole 60s garage scene where um I guess like the mon thing at first I was riding on scooters I had boyfriends with scooters and we'd ride all around town in Newport Beach and go to all the revival movie theater houses and I watched Quadrophenia and all the cool 60s movies yeah. so that really came first and um I was a huge fan also of Madness who we later got to actually play with so it was like oh this is cool <laughs> um I was such a fan of them in high school and um each thing just went up like a little bit more, got a little more gringy, a little more garage from the mod thing. And it just kind of stepped up a little bit. And um, I just, I loved that music. It was just my scene in my music. Yes, absolutely. Well, it's interesting because I had a brother who was seven years older than me during that kind of 70s. And he was really into prog rock. So I got into Yes and Genesis and Wish by Nash and Barclay James Harvest, which I realise is really uncool. But he was a bit kind of nerdy and I kind of worshipped him. So I thought that was great. And then the punk thing sort of came along. But I was too young for punk. So then the early yeah. 80s, we had those kind of two-tone bands like The Beat and Madness and the Specials and um, the Selector. So there was that kind of two-tone world that came along, which was, a, a, it, was, it wasn't so psychedelic, was it? It was more sort of mod. But, but you're right, um, Quadrophenia was a huge film and it had a huge influence because we loved The Who, didn't we? Oh yeah, yeah The Who, absolutely. Yes. The creation, I love The Creation. The creation, yes, that's right. And then, it, as the 80s progressed, because in LA, because this is kind of, this is a bit simplistic, right? But we had that kind of early, the indie pop sound, which was kind of be people like the Smiths and the Go-Betweens and then bands like U2 and Big Country. So we had those kind of bands. And then yeah. we had the mainstream charts that had people like Duran Duran and Sade and Spandau Ballet and all that kind of Trevor Horn production. But then in America, we got this kind of like the LA rock sound, didn't we? And Bruce Springsteen with Born in the USA started to appear probably about 86. So, so America at that stage did seem to have a, uh, have a sort of, everything was a bit Bon Jovi, wasn't it? And Guns N' Roses. Fun, yeah, that, I mean, the, the rocker stuff to, like what, from what I remember, because I experienced it in Pandora's because we went from garage, you know, we can talk about that if you want. But I uh, went from like the garage pop thing into the really rock thing that really wasn't my style at all. Um, but like when you talk about like the, the beat, Paul yeah. Collins and all that, I can remember uh, going to a show seeing Paul Collins and the beat open up for Lords of the New Church. Oh. So bands like Lords of the New Church, The Cure, you know, like all the 80s bands. This, that's what was all like the big popular thing. And I did see Duran Duran. I saw Duran Duran, I saw uh, Talk Talk, um, like all those like 80s bands, those were some of my first really big shows. My, my first show I ever saw actually was um, The Plimsolls. I was, oh. I was, I was 15, 
Yes. Well, Duran Duran, I guess, did you sort of see, was it Nick Rhodes who played keyboards and said, think, God, I want to be like Nick Rhodes one day? No, not at all. But I, I went to a, a record signing at a record store and John Taylor kissed me and I was blown away. I'm like, oh my God, that's amazing. But no, <laughs> um, and I had a, a whole poster signed by them. But I ne no, I never, I never thought, hey, I want to be a keyboardist in a band. It wasn't really, you know, I just thought, you know, my mind, I thought, oh, I'd like to be a guitarist in a band, but I don't know how to play guitar. I wasn't playing key keyboards then until Paula uh, came to me. She kept coming to me. So in, in these 60s garage clubs that we used to hang out in, I was like 16, and she'd come up, she'd get all mad because um, she had started the Pandoras then. And uh, she'd get all mad at the band and she'd come up to me and she goes, do you know how to play an instrument? Like literally, like when they're playing a show, she'd walk over to me and say, do you know how to play? And I'm like, no, not really, no. And I was like kind of shy. I wasn't like, I'm kind of like a blabbermouth now and and uh, I'm super social. But I think back then I was a little, I was super naive and, and much more quiet. And I'm like, no, I, I, I don't. And uh there was just this one time she came up and I was still in high school and she said it to me and my boyfriend standing next to me, he goes, she knows how to play piano. And she was seriously. And I'm like, yeah, okay. And so she's like, well, do you want to try out? She gave me her number and I'm like, all right, I'll try out. And in my house, my mom, she knew how to play organ and stuff. So Paula goes, okay, learn hot generation. Cause it was a song she wanted to do. They they hadn't done it yet. And um, um, Want Need Love and High on a Cloud. Those wow. were the three that she said, learn those. So my mom showed me on a pump organ <laughs> how to play those. And she's like, okay, you're going to come up to LA and try out. And like I said, I'm still in high school. And I'm like, all right. And I go up to Rich Coffey's house. He was in The Unclaimed. He's the guitar player in The Unclaimed. And they had this super continental Vox keyboard. And it was The Unclaimed, which it ended up becoming mine. And it was Paula, my boyfriend, me, and Rich. And I played the songs. They were super simple. And, and then Paula goes, and we had this one other song called Haunted Beach Party, which was a little more involved keyboard lead-ish type of stuff and uh she's like learn that too um and I did it and she looked at looked to me and she's like do you want to be in the band wow like, yeah that is amazing that's that, that's like one of those kind of Hollywood films really isn't it so you just um yeah so she got rid of the kind of mark one this sounds like spinal tap doesn't it then you were mark yeah. two did it kind of feel as soon as you got together that there was some something the chemistry was there Oh, absolutely. I mean, she was, she was a wild person. She was older than me. She started so young in the punk scene with like Kim Fowley and she started a band when she was 14 called The Rage. Kim Fowley told her, go buy a bass. And she'd go watch The Runaways. And so she bought a bass, a Fender Mustang bass, and her first band was called The Rage. And she just knew everything. She, you know, she was in that whole scene from, from such an early age. And we hit it off like immediately and her and I became best friends. And, and um, uh, 
I just, I learned, I learned so much from her. I was so young and so naive and she was just like nobody else. Well, yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, it's quite, it's quite exciting because doing, having done this show for so many years, I hadn't realized, especially the 80s bands, there's a kind of this kind of, and I'm, it might be with every band, but there's a kind of a five-year narrative, you know, like um, people would get together, probably in their teens, and, and rehearse for about a year. And, and we had a DJ called John Peel in this country. And if John Peel gave you a play, that kind of gave everyone that little bit more kind of like, oh, you basically, it's like a board game. You go to the next level. And often you'd get a John Peel session where you'd go to the BBC and you'd record four I songs. Know, of I Stuff. Absolutely, all the records, John Peel sessions and stuff. Yes, so you do that and then you get the first album, things looking good for the band. And like Britain is so tiny, isn't it? Literally, it's tiny. But every town and city would have an indie night, probably on a Monday, Wednesday, or, you know, early part of the week. And you'd get at least, you know, 100, 200 people who'd turn up and see the band. So that, that was always good. It was when the bands get into that second album. And in the UK, the other thing I noticed, if anybody ever says, then we toured America, they'd always go, and then we came back and split up because apparently touring America is horrendous for British bands. I think they're a bit wimpy, really. But anyway, that's a narrative. But you, but there's that honeymoon phase, isn't there? A period where everything is just like it all just lines up, you know. So did did that have a similar vibe with you? Absolutely. So when you say that, like I said, you know, I I uh, tried out and then she uh, uh, said. Uh, that she already had a bass player uh, that was going to be in the band because she, the bass player of the original Pandora's quit and she was getting rid of the keyboard player who I was replacing and the drummer was deciding what to do, but she had already tried out Karen. And um, so basically the drummer did leave and it ended up being Karen, me, Julie, and Paula, and literally like a week after me being in the band, we went and recorded Hot Generation and You Don't Satisfy, which was <laughs> like, you know, here I am in high school and playing on a single for Bomp Records, because I had already been, when I was 15, going into Bomp Records and, and going in their, their uh, warehouse buying cool records. Yeah, and uh, I I couldn't believe it. I'm like, this is this is a dream come true. And then Wine on the Rock was like the hugest supporter of us ever, and he just he started playing the single all the time, and we did some other songs for some comps like I Want My Caveman, and uh, that it all came it all happened pretty fast. And then we went on tour of the East Coast too, like my first time ever going to the East Coast and and uh, it was pretty exciting. Yes, well I would imagine and, and that kind of youthful fun and ex yes, enthusiasm with slight naivety but with arrogance as well. You need the both, don't you really? It's a yeah. complicated world. So what was it like going into the studio and sort of having that experience from sort of very little to blimey, we're in the studio and, and creating probably some of your best or most famous songs? You know, it, it, it was, it, I remember it was the middle of the night. So the engineer, his name was Gary Stern and the studio was called Silvery Moon. It was right uh, off of La Cienega Boulevard, which was near a place a little uh, hot dog stand called Tail of the Pup. And the studio was in this alley. And he said, you know, you're going to come in in the middle of the night. 
So we show up in the middle of the night in this alley and we go in and it's like, oh my God, this is so exciting. And here we have all of our cool equipment, you know? And um, I actually have a few pictures from that recording session. And um, Greg Shaw came in and Greg, I don't remember Greg doing a lot. I remember him standing there like this, just kind of like that. But like, it was, Gary did pretty much everything, but you know, we just went in, we recorded the whole thing live. It, it was pretty quick. It happened all that night, those two songs. And then I remember we were finishing up and then the, the Miracle Workers, this beyond the Miracle Workers from Portland, Oregon, they were gonna be on bomb. And they come pulling up in the alley to say hi. <laughs> So I was like, oh, okay, hi. But I, I, that's what I remember from that night. And I just, I remember, you know, just, I don't remember how many takes it took or anything, but it was all pretty quick. Wow. That must, and did it sound, when you heard it back, did you think, wow, that's unbelievably brilliant. That's going to be a hit. I, I, um, I remember going, uh, thinking, I can't believe I did this. This is, you know, it's cool. It was great. And, um, I, I remember it was pretty easy. It wasn't like frustrated or anything like that. It all went pretty smoothly. And I remember we got like a special mix that we gave Rodney and Rodney, cause he likes to have his spe special stuff for him. And uh, he just started playing it immediately. It was like, whoa, you know, and both of those songs, both uh, Hot Generation and You Don't Satisfy. Yes, because I, I I didn't realise Rodney is such a sort of iconic. He's the John Peel of L.A., isn't he? He's, really? Yeah, he he is. Yeah, good comparison. He, he is the man, really, which is quite interesting. So then, when you got into doing the second album, because this is then you go on to Rhino Records, and this is where you start touring with some major people. How did you obviously weren't at high school anymore? How did that sort of experience start to develop? Because, because obviously, because most bands don't get off the launch pad, do they really? They just kind of go, oh, that was it. But then, you know, um, you, occasionally you just go for it and you think, blimey, we, we haven't got time to really think about it. Suddenly you're in the studio, you're on tour, there's all that kind of pressure and suddenly record labels. I just wondered how you coped with that in those next couple of years. You know, every like, like we were saying, everything happened pretty, pretty quickly, I would say, for me joining the band. Um, and then um, we played a lot of shows, a lot of big shows. We started playing with a lot of huge people. And, and uh, we, we, uh, Nina Hagen was one of them that we, that we became friends with and did a number of shows with her in the U.S. And um, it was all moving pretty quickly I would say and then um we got courted by Epitaph Records Brett Gowitz uh he decided he was going to start a record label called Epitaph Records and he had I don't think he'd signed anybody yet and um possibly maybe the Vandal and um and then Rhino started courting us and Paula really kind of had a relationship with them because of like Gary Stewart and Bill Inglot, he had already um, produced earlier Pandora stuff. And they, Paula, that was kind of like her whole music scene where like what all the Rhino people. And so we, uh, with our manager's help and stuff, we decided, you know, which, which one would be better for us. And, and um, we decided on Rhino. We thought that that would be a good, a good place for us. 
and and so we signed with them and then that's uh right when we signed that's when kim chaddick joined the band and um because julie left the band it wasn't working out for her and um i met kim in a store and Lloyd mcdonald and i were shopping in a store and i met kim and we were looking for a bass player and i called her and she came and to my house and tried out and the second me and her hung out that day we her and i became best friends that was that was it her wow, and I, that's fantastic yeah no it, it was it was just it, it was it was meant to be when her and i met each other but um so we we started with rhino and then we immediately just started coming up with we made demos we went in kim got in the band we went into demos with bill we decided bill inglot was going to be our producer and then after deciding on the songs for the album from the demos we we just started going into um different studios the the basic tracks we did an all-nighter we <laughs> We were told, whatever you guys do, you need to get a really good night, night's rest. Yeah, okay. You know, we of course did not listen. And each of us, Kim and I, I think Kim, I, and Karen had gone out. And then Paula went her own way. Paula went her own way, party, totally, you know, obnoxious party night. And someone else we knew was with her and had taken photos. And then Kim, me, and Karen, we went out to a show. And I think Nina was there, Nina Hagen. And we partied and partied and partied and partied all night where Kim got her arm stuck in a mailbox. I was, I was laying in the gutter. There's photos of all this too that <laughs> exists somewhere. So we didn't really listen um, because we were supposed to stay up for 24 hours and go in and record. So that was what we did the night before going in and recording our basic tracks for Stop Pretending. And we wow. showed up at the studio and uh, we did it. <laughs> <laughs> we went and recorded all night for like the next 24 hours and we did pretty good I think. God that's amazing. I think um, Black Sabbath did the same, well they did the same on that first album. I think they'd been playing it for years and they had a studio day and they just said well we can just put it all down in a day and it's like oh okay then. And that was it, the classic first album. So with your playing were you sort of also having to do quite a bit of rehearsing and practicing to sort of because you sort of sounded like you've sort of gone from a few basic moment uh, notes to sort of like wow I'm now in a band I better I better learn some more musical kind of theory and sort of um yeah technique I guess okay so I'm not I'm I'm not um I'm not a musician like that I'm more of a musician that kind of just watches and learns that's how i taught myself guitar as well when kim and i were gonna decided that we wanted to have our own band and um i yeah you know we we rehearsed it, it in the pandoras and the muffs we rehearsed like all the time like five days a week so we had lots and lots and lots of rehearsals so of course you know i went from basic chords although the pandoras were really just that it Every band I've ever been in, um, we play simple. Everything's simple. I'm not a like mm. player like any instrument, and I don't care for that kind of stuff. It's just simple, solid, cool, uh, good melody. That's that's really what I like. And um, you know, I didn't go take lessons. No, I didn't. You know, just just lots of practicing and learning and watching and 
touring, touring, you know, touring really does so much. It makes your band so tight and you experience so much. Yes. And were you, and were you getting, as the 80s progressed, because things do change with each decade, were you getting any sort of, not pressure from outside, well, you might have got a few bit of, bit of pressure from outside, but I just wondered if there was people saying, oh, you need to go for this sound, or were you sticking with what you wanted to do? Were you being influenced by other people? Because, I mean, particularly with that decade, I'd noticed that things had gone from that really Trevor Horn production sound that we had on, you know, people like Frankie Goes to Hollywood and ABC and Talk Talk especially, and then the sort of like, that sounds quite dated now, and then you get that kind of more earthy sound. And then with it in, in the UK, you had the dance scene with people like the Happy Mondays and Stone Roses and Primal Scream. So I just wondered as things changed. And also the other thing that happened in, in, in the UK, because I put indie pop, you know, the Smiths down between, they, they, they lasted between 83 to 87 and they split up. And one of the other things that happened in, in the UK was 87, 88. Um, ecstasy comes along and suddenly everyone starts kind of going oh we want to go to acid house parties and you know take lots of drugs and I just wondered if you were starting to also think oh we need to slightly this is what the people you know the kids are really into I just wondered how that was kind of influencing the band. So for the Pandoras Paula was the, the songwriter and and uh, none of us could write songs in the band when we joined the band. That's, you know, that was kind of like the agreement that we all said that's not a problem. So, um, but that being said, Paula writing the songs, we all came up with our own parts. So she would bring a song to us uh, and say, you know, this is what I'm thinking. This is, you know, she, she might have a specific drum part or specific something and she'd do that. But other than that, it was like, do your thing, come up with it. And unfortunately with Paula, uh, fortunately, but then unfortunately, Paula like wrote amazing uh, pop garage songs, really great melodic stuff, but she was really heavily influenced by what was popular at the time, which is odd because she was before her time really doing what we did. Uh, before anyone else was really doing it. But um, she also, at, at the same time, what was popular and then who she was dating influenced her. So songs, you know, songs like, um, we'll say Stop Pretending. She wrote that in a band uh, called The Action Now. And she wrote that song, she had dated Peter Case from the Plimsolls. And that was, that was, she wrote that back then. And um, it's a great song. You know, she has like each kind of sections of songs. Uh, so when she started Pandora, she was dating the singer Shelly Gans from the Unclaimed, very garage. And then we kind of went more pop. And then the hard rock thing, that was just bad. <laughs> it, it, I think, um, you know, so much stuff happened. The Rhino period was great. That was such a great album. And um, then we got signed, we got courted by Electra Records. And that really kind of changed a lot of things. We've always been our own people and did what we want, say what we want. No one's ever told us like, you know, how to play something, how uh, uh, do we, to dress or do anything, but I will say when we did sign with Electra, that changed a lot. We had um, 
the head of Electra Records, his name was Peter Philbin. And I'm not a huge fan at all. And he came in and he, he started saying, you know, you guys, you need to take lessons. You need to dress a certain way. You need to lose weight. You need to, you know, all the horrendous things that you, that you hear about. Yeah, that, that did happen. You need a clothes designer. All this stuff. And it was like kind of like we're molding you into this thing, you know, so you can be this big hit. And they actually, they put all this, this money into us, you know, probably a couple hundred thousand dollars were spent on this recording. We had, we got a producer, Bill Drescher. He had worked with Rick Springfield and um, the unreleased album. Uh, we, end, well, we ended up, there were some switchovers with band members at that time. It's just that whole period wasn't a great period. And then we switched over drummers and Paula kept going more and more rock. She actually went from that kind of pop to more like a Brian Adams type of thing. Right. Uh, not really my style or Kim's style either. And there's still some good songs though. And then uh, we didn't like Bill's, Bill Drescher's production, it was just so 80s. Can read it back now, it's funny, it is so 80s. And um, that was like 87. And so we brought in Arthur Barrow, who was the bass player of Frank Zappa. And Arthur is just a wonderful person. And he came in and he kind of rocked it up because Paula starts going a little more ACDC at this time. And uh, not saying that Arthur was like ACDC because he wasn't, but um, just gave it, it gave it a harder rock edge. And so he remixed it and we recorded a new song, went down the battery. And that, that was, is what was on the test pressing for the Electra album. And, you know, it just wasn't a good time. We met some great people then, but it just looking back at it, it was like really a really sad kind of period. Kim and I weren't so happy with it and um, kind of like the start of, you know, but it, it's, you know, we thought it'd be okay. And then Sherry joined on drums and um, we ended up getting dropped. And so we, we uh, started a relationship with Restless Records, which was part of Enigma. And that's really when uh, it started going more rock. And, and like I said before, this had nothing to do with Kim or me or Sherry at the time then or Karen before, because that wasn't our personalities or our taste in music. But Paula, unfortunately, I think she thought that this was like what she needed to do to make it. And it was wrong because all she needed to do was be herself and just do what she was already doing. Yeah. I, I really feel that that would have done it, but she kept changing. And I think, in her, you know, she never admitted that, but, but we knew. And it, it really just ended up getting to the point where she was listening to White Snake and, and just these horrid bands, just terrible, terrible bands. And she truly, uh, she truly liked these bands. <laughs> And the, the musical direction of the songs were just pretty bad, but we kept playing them, we kept doing our thing. And then that's when I started saying, um, I'm gonna learn how to play guitar. <laughs> <laughs>
I did. I'd forgotten White Snake. I'd slightly removed those images of and the videos from my brain. But yes, White Snake was quite something, and ZZ Top, and um, yeah, we had Bon Jovi, didn't we? So I guess people were looking. Were you? Would, did you sort of now looking back? Was it kind of looking at the LA rock scene, thinking we need to be more Motorhead? Well, I like Motorhead. Motorhead were cool. I saw them play, um, but. She was really influenced by her boyfriend, boyfriend, she had a boyfriend and she had another boyfriend when we were like, after getting, getting dropped all that, she ended up with a super metal head. And, uh, no, she just got into this just bad music and, you know, Kim and I had our own little thing, we'd laugh at it, make fun of it, and I think like in a lot of, uh, like the videos you see on YouTube and stuff, you can see me and Cam go up talking to each other. We're laughing. We're making fun of the situation because we hated it. And, and um, you know, she, I just don't think she really knew what she wanted. And I think she so badly wanted to make it that, uh, yeah, the LA, the LA strip scene stuff became popular. It was so gross. It just, so, it was just so not like, you know, I'm not putting down those people at all. That's great. They're, the music that they made, they're happy. That's, I'm not gonna put anyone down, but certainly not my thing or really what our band had started off as. Yes, I know. It's, it is quite tricky, isn't it? Being an artist, I guess it is that thing of sticking with what you, what you want to do or being very led. Cause it was interesting. Cause uh, I mean, David Bowie had been my, you know, like my first single, thank God for that. And first album. And I was always obsessed with Bowie, which was quite lucky. It could have been someone else. But anyway, what I noticed though, I really thought he was amazing that in the eighties, he did Let's Dance, which was kind of all right. Then he did two really kind of bad albums. And I had sort of thought about them. And I realized that for the once in his life, he, you kind of, instead of just thinking, oh, this is what I want to do, it's almost like he looked around going, what do people want? And I'll give them that. And it's like, oh, yeah. dear, that's really bad. And then he did Tin Machine as if to say, right, I'm going to go back to just do what I want to do, get that out of my system, and then continue. And then, you know, then he just did whatever. And it was like, some of it was great, some of it was poor. But it wasn't like that 80s stuff, which was like, God, that's just, that's just bad. But, you know, I mean, it was all right, but it did seem like a lot of artists got a little bit lost in the 80s, kind of thinking they want this kind of produ producer and this sort of sound. And it, it sounds so dated now as well. So, um, and the videos of White Snake, oh, yeah. my God. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. There's, and there's pictures of Paula in her White Snake shirt. But no, you know, and, and, and ultimately what ended up happening was like, um, you know, the story goes, I, I am the longest person that's ever played with Paula in, in her career. And um, she decided that she didn't want keyboards anymore. This is right in the end because she thought, once again, she could make it in the rock thing and she, the keyboard keyboards weren't going to be part of it. And um, for me playing guitar, I wasn't a lead guitar player. I'm still not. I'm a rhythm guitar player. I can play leads. But um, I, I was so new. I had just that whole last year, I would come up and play like a song or two with the Pandoras during our show, but um, I wasn't good enough to like be the good lead, you know, a guitar player. So she, she said, you know, that she didn't need me in the band anymore. So at the time, Kim and I, we had already been practicing to have our new band. We'd already been doing that for at least like six, eight months. 
uh, learning some of Kim's songs and, and jamming before Pandora's practices, it was like, okay, you know, it was really sad. It was like breaking up with a boyfriend and Kim stayed because we were supposed to go to Europe. So she's like, I'm going to stay and uh, just wait it out to get to Europe and then, then you know, leave and her and I are going to do our band. We didn't have the name of the Muffs yet, but we were already, like I said, practicing. And so that happened and then Kim did a couple shows uh, still with the band and Paula canceled the tour. Kim was like, see ya. And Sherry did one more show and that was it. They, they, they all, everybody left. They're, they're the other guitar player kind of stayed with Paula, but they weren't doing anything. And the Paula, during that period, that's when Kim and I started the Muffs and did that and started putting out singles and, and going on tour. Paula started getting ready to, um, you know, she was kind of going in a more pop direction, kind of seeing like maybe, you know, changing again. And that's when she died. So who knows what she would have done? Who knows, you know, because at that time, then all of a sudden Nirvana, like that's what we say, what would Paula be doing? Would she have done like the Nirvana thing next? Because she'd always jump on like the thing just a yeah. little bit after though. Except for the garage thing, which she was so before her time. Yeah, it's a bit of a shame, really, because actually, I think in yeah. in because I remember in the UK there was like you know like that ecstasy scene with those kind of dance bands, and then you had Seattle came in, and that slightly changed things. There was always these other bands who just did their stuff, but then we had Britpop, which came about ninety two, ninety three, and actually, probably the Pandoras would have been perfect for that. But then the Muffs would have just picked up on that kind of going back to basic, kind of like all these bands like Oasis and Blur were sounding like the Beatles or the Kinks and, you know, sort of discovering that 60s kind of vibe again, really. Yeah. So yeah, I don't, you know, what were you saying? I was, I was going to say, but then, you know, because cause mostly at that stage, most people think I've just had enough with music. I've just, you know, it's been a bit tricky, you know, lots of emotional relationship stuff and, you know, mostly people don't make a huge amount of money and they think I've just got to get another, I've got to sort of learn to um, pay the rent now and, and get a job. But you then start another band, which is very energetic of you. Yeah, I mean, really, like the whole reason that uh, Kim and I did that was because we, we said um, we want to do our own thing. You know, the music had gotten so bad, it wasn't our thing. We weren't doing what we wanted to do. So we just said, we want to play art instruments. I wanted to play guitar. She went to play guitar. She went to sing. Uh, we said, let's write songs. Let's do exactly what we want. Our style of music. And that's what we did. And it was awesome. It was, yeah. you know, it was exactly what we wanted to do. And I think um, Paula, she, she came to a couple of our shows and, you know, I think she saw that, that we were kind of getting popular and stuff. And she, you know, I'm sure it probably affected her a little bit. And I, and I will say, uh, right before she died, she did call me and she said how proud of me she was. She was, you know, it was a really nice conversation. It was about a week, two weeks before. And uh, she just said, um, you know, everything that I've done and me playing guitar and all that kind of stuff, that she was really, really proud of me. Which is amazing, really. That's such a nice oh, yeah. thing to say. 
Oh no, I mean, you know, she she was my family. All 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 those girls, they're they're my family. I've known, you know, they'll always be with me. So it must be quite amazing because you've you've worked, you know, you've had to deal with some really strong characters and having Paula and Kim, they're quite amazing people to had relate, you know, to be on the same planet and to have been in a band with, with both of them is quite quite some journey, isn't it? Absolutely, total uh I I pick people like that in my life. Those are like the people that I'm attracted to are these these uh, different, unique people that might not be like everybody else that are uh, just really uh, outspoken. I, I'm the same way. I'm not afraid of, of anybody or anything. I'm real. I just say it, how we see it and how I feel. And, um, you know, I kind of align myself with people like that. And another thing is um, I really like, uh, I'm attracted to people with really like thick senses, sense of humor um just yeah no i've always had big personalities yes um, absolutely so you, when you started sure. the mucks did that feel like wow a big weight had dropped off from the pandoras and the way that kind of slightly got into a bit of a messy you know like cul-de-sac of kind of this isn't quite us to suddenly think oh my god this is amazing we've gone of like a um, kind of a second wind really Oh yeah, it was it was so exciting. It was so wonderful, and it was in the very beginning. Um, we just started. We you know we kind of used the thing that Kim and I had been in Pandora's. So I would call up clubs, and I was like the band booker, and um, say, "Hey, we want to play a show. We're we're in the Pandora's. Well, can we come play?" And they're like, "Yeah." And so we booked our first West Coast tour and we were so proud of ourselves. And then through connections of people that we knew, um, we got like uh, Long Gun John and then um, Bruce Milne from Go Go Records, Long Gun John from um, Sympathy, and then also The um, um, Pop. And we just asked them, I asked them, I'm like, you know, can we, we do a single and like, yeah, well, I want to do it. So like those guys did it. And then when we went up on our first West Coast tour, we did the Sub Pop single and then we got asked to do uh, a lot of comps as well, like the Rock rock and Roll Girl and Brand New Chevy, different, different uh, songs like that that are on various different comps. But um, it was, it was so refreshing, new. I can remember it. We were so excited and we would go make flyers. I have tons of the old flyers. I have a lot of a lot of stuff. I have a lot of photos and like original, original like the stuff we would do when we would go make the flyers, the ideas, like the, the stuff like taped up on it and just fun stuff. Yes. And then because because your first, your debut album, that does capture a certain kind of groovy vibe, but also you were, you had signed to a major label as well. So things must have moved very fast for you. It did. It was, you know, we just started playing a lot of shows and then we got some interest and this guy, Dave Katz Nelson, he, uh, he came, he started coming to see us play and then he, he uh, worked at Warner Brothers and then this other guy, Rob Cavallo, uh, 
also worked at Warner Brothers. So Dave said, hey, Rob, you want to come see them? Um, maybe we could do this together. At the time, Dave had just signed Mud Honey right. to Warner Brothers. And so Dave and Rob uh, both approached us then this, like, as like a co, um, co-signing type of thing. We had two A&R guys and said, you know, let's do a demo deal. And it's funny because I just hung out with Rob Cavallo this last month and he was talking about that. And he's like, he was talking about like taking uh, the, our demo tape to, to Lenny Warnaker and playing it for all like the big dudes uh, and, and girls, women uh, at, at Warner Brothers and like hearing it and like their like the re- reactions to like hearing like, I think, I forget the songs, but Lucky Guy was one. Um, and they were just blown away. And they're like, when are we going to sign up? But it was so cool hearing, like, the stories that Rob remembered from it. But, yeah, it was really exciting. It was like, bam, 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 here. We signed a demo deal. We did the demo deal. We got signed. And then it was like, okay, we're going to sign you to, you know, the record label and then going in and uh, yes. do an album. It was a perfect time because there was a band in the UK um, called Lush who captured a certain, I think they were like, Quite a similar looking lineup. You both had the quite similar image. So what? So you did capture a certain zeitgeist at this point, didn't you? Because it was like the Seattle scene had slightly, like every scene, you realise that after two years, it's like, oh dear, that's getting a bit tragic. And we'd had enough of that kind of. I mean, when you see those bands from the nineties, the early nineties, on sort of little clips on Instagram, you know, you think, oh God, I can't. Rem- I didn't realise they all looked the same. Those blokes with the long hair, cut off jeans talking about their kind of, you know. They're totally good. You know, they've all got the same voice. They've all got the grungy sound. They're all doing the same pose. And you're thinking, oh, God, I hadn't quite picked that up. But now looking at it 20 years later, you think, jeezy, greasy. And they're all talking about their sort of, you know, broken homes and problems with their father (laughs) and all that kind of stuff, you know. And it's all like a Jack Daniels with one hand and a T-shirt. And, you know, from Soundgarden to Pearl Jam, it's like, jeez. They, they kind of all were the same band. And then, you know, we got this kind of Britpop sound and the Muffs really had that kind of quality of being like, oh, this is much more kind of less kind of dense and a bit more fun. So they must have felt, again, quite a honeymoon phase. But then, then how come you left the band? Well, you know, I'm not going to go completely all into that, but... Um, um, So, you know, I'll just say we put out the album, we toured, and then there were some changes. Uh, Chris left, Julius Pisa came in, and then uh, Roy McDonald came in, who we originally wanted in the band. And so then um, uh, the summer, the, the late summer of, yeah, of, I think the 84, of 94, um, it was weird. It was, it was weird. Uh, between Kim and I, um, and um, I mean, what I'll say is I did not want to leave. So that's what I will say about it. It yeah. wasn't really my choice. It wasn't what I wanted. Yeah. Um, I, um, it, you know, it, it's such a horrible thing that it happened. It should have never happened because Kim and I absolutely loved each other and we're each other's best friends. No other friends in the world have either of us ever had. And um, at the time that happened and 
I have integrity and I left. So I'll leave it at that. Sure. And, um, you know, we didn't speak for a lot of years. We actually didn't see each other in person uh, for 17 years. We wasted 17 years of our life because of this. And um, it's really horrible. We were meant to be back together. We were meant to always be together. We were meant to make music together. And, um, you know, I, I, I hope other people don't go through that. Just, you know, you have to like, just kind of let things go and, and, and forgive and um, move on. Yes. So we, we were fortunate fortunate enough to reconnect. In the meantime, obviously the muffs like went on and um, did, you know, put out a lot of records. And then I, at the time I joined the leaving trains and I played with the leaving trains for 10 years. And then um, I also did another band of my own called Pointy Kitty for uh, probably about three, three or four years as well. My God, but, your, um, your perseverance is quite extraordinary. Making you know, seriously, I mean, most people just think, you know, they get sort of basically that, I can't do this anymore emotionally, but you, you obviously have something quite strong there. I'm not, I'm not, I don't ever want to stop doing it ever, ever, ever. And, you know, when Kim, when Kim and I reconnected in, um, two, 2000 and, um, Let's see, 2009, her and I reconnected and then actually saw each other face to face in, in 2011. And we went out to lunch and it was, it was insane. It was like, we cried and cried and cried and hugged each other. And she said she was sorry. And uh, it, it was, you know, it just should have never happened. And so from that, that day forward, we moved on and we reformed the Pandoras um, and then the Muffs, you know, and then I, I reconnected with Ronnie and Roy as well. And, um, you know, I'm, they're all my family. They're all part of my musical family and my world. And, um, and then so Kim and I did that. And then through her, you know, being sick, we created another band called the Coolies to raise money for ALS. And, um, you know, I spent every day with her through her illness for two years straight um, up until, you know, with her death, I was with her when she died. So, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's amazing to be able to have a, a partner, like a, I call her my musical, uh, my BFF and musical soulmate. Yes, God, that's quite a heavy one, though, isn't it? Cheesy, crazy. That's quite to go through that. But I guess I'm guessing here. But, you know, if that hadn't been for that experience of reconnecting and sort of, I, I mean, it's a bit of a corny term, but kind of healing, that would have felt really difficult to have continued after her death, I guess. That, you know, it, it I, I mean, it was just meant to be the way, the way that. It, what happened, you know, in the end, and we said that, you know, we had, we had so much time to talk about. Um, it was horrific what she, she went through with ALS, but I, I, I feel so fortunate to have been able to make 
all these new memories with her, even like in the worst part of like, you know, life going through that, her and I made incredible new memories that will never leave me and, you know, that she took with her. So, um, you know, I guess it was all supposed to be that way and her and I were supposed to be there with each other and, and I, I made a promise to her that I would hold her hand till the end and I did. Yes, well, quite. God, that's quite, yeah, at least, I mean, it gives you some, some, some way of sort of being able to sort of connect to that, um, those kind of feelings that happened before then. God, that's such a, that's such a story, isn't it, really? But it's often, it's often, what's often quite tricky, though, when you have those kind of relationships, it's not feeling like the victim, because if you feel like the victim, you can never let go of situations, I think. So then... You're right, you're right, and you're right, and neither of us were a victim. The thing was, her and I, we had so much time to talk about it, and we said to each other, this, we should have, this shouldn't have happened. We shouldn't have had this happen in our relationship because there was no other for each of us in, in anything, in anything, and her and I have the same sense of humor, just, oh my God, amazing stuff, and, and you know, just, we cried together, that we were sorry to each other for the things that upset each other and, 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 and that had happened. And um, yeah, I think in life, you just, you gotta kind of roll with it and, and not be vindictive and, and let things like that bother you. You gotta kind of like, just take it and go with it and be strong and uh, do, do, what, do what you want and just move forward. Yes, this is good. But then, which is kind of quite magical, I have to say your career is quite amazing. Because um, <laughs> it's like not so many, I hardly met anybody who's managed to get into to so many musical scenes and bands and have so much emotion. And frankly, I can't believe you could do it all. But then in 2014, you, you kind of, again, reformed the Pandoras and, and sort of record four songs in, in the Green Day studio, which must have felt like at least you're not just going back all the time, but you're actually creating something new. It must have felt quite a relief. Sorry, my son's making this in the kitchen, being noisy. Um, yeah, once again, um, that the same thing. So we, we said, you know what, this is fun. But another thing, never did we ever think we would reach one of the Pandoras, you know, without Paula. Uh, first of all, but then like that we would ever be playing Pandora songs again. And then we said, you know what, let's do it. This is fun. Let's, we're going to pick out the songs, like all the cool songs that we love, the ones we loved, ones that we uh, always wanted to record, didn't get to record, and covers that we did. And, um, you know, uh, we were fortunate enough to, to uh, be able to record in Green Day Studio. We actually did a whole seven song EP there, but it's two different trips or within like a year of each other. Um, but yeah, the same thing. It was just same like exciting type of thing. And then um, also that we said, let's start touring. Let's, you know, here, which was really cool for me to like be able to doing this because I had had kids and, uh, you know, I wasn't doing that much then, maybe a little bit here and there, but all of a sudden it was like, whoa, here I am doing this again in the Pandoras and I'm on tour in Europe. <laughs> so I dug it. Yes. And there is kind of, I mean, without it being a nostalgic 
a nostalgia journey. But there is always that kind of interest in bands in the past, isn't there? Mainly because sometimes when you're doing something, especially in your youth, you don't really appreciate it because you just think that's what it happens. And then suddenly that moves on. You think, oh my God, it's gone. We can't, you know, yeah. I wish I'd appreciated it more at the time. But then to be able to have that experience later on sometimes means that you kind of appreciate it. And also the fan and new people as well can come and watch you. So that must have felt quite nice being able to sort of reconnect with both the band, the original band members that were left, as well as kind of connecting with your fans and, in, you know, seeing new people. Oh, I will tell you, uh, it was the, just the greatest feeling, um, all of us hanging out like that, practicing all the time again, um, learning the songs again, and then um, going, you know, to Europe, uh, because we never got to play Europe in. Pandora's and people like telling us I waited 30 years to hear you know what need love and in hot generation and all these songs and we played sold out shows and it was we, we had like the, the Fuzzville thing in um, Spain and Benidorm Spain and it was incredible and it, it, and it meant so much to us and we felt so fortunate that we were given the opportunity to be able to go go there for three weeks and do that the people that never got to see us and then you know there's other people that have been lifelong fans that never got to see us back in the day and we played a number of shows in Minneapolis and New York and um you know around town here and stuff so uh, and our last show was a Nuggets festival show that we played with the Shadows of Night with uh Jimmy Shones excellent that was the last ever Pandora show Yes. So going vaguely forward, if we can, I mean, what's, what, what, what would your, you know, hope, what are you hoping for for the next, you know, year or two? It's hard to describe. Yes. I just wondered if there was any projects you're working on at the moment. Yeah, um, I am working on stuff. So um, I do play keyboards in Josie Cotton's touring band. So I did, I did a, uh, um, show in Minneapolis with her and then we had during the pandemic we were supposed to do an east coast tour which will be rescheduled and then um I don't play all the live shows with her here in LA but I had a number of shows that I was going to play with her most recently we were going to do one in December with uh the former members of Oingo Boingo like a drive-in yes uh show but it got rescheduled as well so there's there's that stuff coming up and then Palmyra and I are continuing on the Coolies, which is the band that that her, Kim, and I created while Kim was sick to raise money for ALS, and we're going to continue. We're going to put out another EP, a couple more EPs, and raise money for ALS. And um, we have we have music. We have we the three of us all talked about it, and we have um, songs that we're writing. With Kim, uh, she left us stuff, and um, you know everybody will see. Little Steven's going to put it out on Wicked Cool Records. Oh, and so we're, Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're really looking forward to it. So that's in the future. And then um, I've also no one really knows this, but I guess I'll just say I've been working with another Wicked Cool um, artist. His name's Ryan Hamilton. So we have like a project that will. Um, come out in the future as well. Excellent. There's, there's, oh, yeah, yeah, there's, there's so the love of music is still with you. Oh 
Oh yeah, and let me say also, um, I just love Vox. I have a, a, a Marara Vox, I endorse Vox. Um, I have a, a beautiful Vox Bobcat guitar and uh, I just got an AC30 Vox amp. So I continued playing my Vox stuff. I started off with the Vox Super Continental keyboard and um, I'm still playing them and I'm doing some stuff for them as well. Excellent. Well, that's fantastic. So look, if you could have said something to your something to your 16 or 18 year old self starting out with all the experience and my God, you've had so much. I mean, is there any sort of advice you would have kind of would love to have whispered in their ear or just some sort of sagely kind of kind of wisdom that you think, God, I'll just tell you this. You might ignore it. Because obviously probably people would. But, you know, you just think, yeah, this is something I've really learned from being on this earth. I mean, really, the thing that I've learned is most importantly, and I teach my children's children this as well, is um, you know what? You got to be yourself. You got to listen to yourself, nobody else. Do what you feel is right. It doesn't matter if other people don't agree with it. You know, be, be true uh, to your musical sense, to your style, to your personality. And, uh, you know, I'm a big person that believes in saying how you feel. I, I feel that that is so importantly, I'm not gonna go through life not letting people know how I feel about them um, because life is so incredibly short. I feel like I've, you know, I've obviously had two wonderful friends die um, way too young. And I think, you know, laughing and not taking things so seriously is really, really so important. You have, you have to have a sense of humor and uh um i mean those are really like my life lessons i'm just like kind of me i'm like a giant kid my kids always tell me to grow up and i just kind of don't change i just kind of think i'll always be like me <laughs> well, it's great that you've gone through so much and haven't sort of ended up feeling a bit you know some people you know can get a bit twit you know bitter or a bit kind of yeah just a bit angry a bit edgy you know just because things have happened but they haven't sort of processed it and let kind of go of it so they're still a bit you know i would i don't know about damage but sort of you know you must have met people you think just you need to chill out oh god yeah see i i don't live my life like that i i live it like i i am i i feel so fortunate and honored for the people that have been in my life and been a part of like this opportunity and what I've been given um, and friends, I've met so many wonderful friends. I mean, I'm like, you know, I'm just real and, and I just am a sentimental person and um, yeah, no bitterness. What, what, where's bitterness gonna get you? Where's hate gonna get you? What, you know, it's, it's horrible things happen and we're all lucky to be here. You know, it's, it's, just not the way to live your life. This is true. This is very true. And that, dear listener, is the end of the interview. And uh, that was me in conversation with Melanie Vermen.
uh, keyboard player. I know it was a bit of a pause there. Um, keyboard player with the Pandoras and also a guitarist and has been in, well, we've just been talking about it, haven't we? The Muffs as well. Anyway, look, that's the end of the interview. This has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, do C86 Show. Also, I've been doing interviews... Um, for many years and uh, so any indie band from the 80s check it out I should have um, well I probably would have interviewed them so um, yeah just go to Spotify iTunes and Podbean see 86 show it's all good anyway look have a great week stay safe and all that malarkey tune in again I will have more guests I'm sure <laughs>